So today we're going to talk about the merits of honesty, of being honest before God. Our study through the book of Acts brings us to the fifth chapter, and there's this amazing story in Acts chapter 5, a story that is quite alarming that you would think fits in the Old Testament, but not in the New Testament. And so uh, it's a story about a couple who thought they could lie to God in church and something really bad uh, happened to them. And so I've entitled this message, Till Death Do We Part. Now, we know life is about making deals, right? Life is about negotiating, that you don't get what you deserve in life, you get what you negotiate for. So uh, very early on, as parents, we know our children begin to develop uh, the art of negotiation, right? Uh, kids know how to negotiate what they want with their parents. They know how to, to make a deal or negotiate with what they want from their siblings, uh, whether it's negotiating over a toy or play space or whatever it might be. And it, and it doesn't go away. Every business person in here, you know the importance of not only making a deal, but closing that deal. Uh, for a short time, I was in sales, and sales is based on commission. And so I realized it's not just about making the deal, but closing the deal. That's how I got paid. That's how I was able to put food on the table. So here's the deal, though. Uh, no pun intended. Here's the deal. God doesn't make deals. He makes covenants. He makes promises. He made commandments. But he doesn't make deals. But if you do make a deal with God, if you do make a deal with God, you better keep it. Uh, look at what it says in Ecclesiastes 5, verses 4 and 5. It says, if you make a vow to God, discharge it without delay. In other words, perform it. For God has no love for fools. Discharge or perform your vow. Better a vow unmade than made and not discharged. Now, marriage is a covenant. But within the framework of that marriage covenant, two people are making a deal. Okay? Two people are exchanging vows to one another. Uh, for better, for worse, in sickness, in health, till death do we part. So there's the story of a married couple here in Acts chapter 5. And they're an infamous married couple. How many know there are some famous couples in the Bible, right? What are, some of the, what are some of the famous couples in the Bible? Adam and Eve, would you all say that Adam and Eve are a famous couple in the Bible? Absolutely. How about Abraham and Sarah? They're a famous couple in the Bible. Ruth and Boaz, they're a famous couple in the Bible. Uh, Catholics, help me out. Who's like the most famous couple in the Bible, married couple in the Bible? Joseph and Mary, right? Joseph, the stepfather of Jesus. Mary, the mother of Jesus, they are a famous married couple. And then there are some infamous couples in the Bible, right? Uh, when you start thinking about infamous couples in the Bible, you have to think of David and Bathsheba, right? They didn't have a very good beginning. How many know that sometimes in marriage you can have a bad beginning but a great ending? Or you can have a great beginning and a bad ending. Uh, or you can have a bad beginning and a bad ending, or you can have a great beginning and a great ending. How many know the goal is to have a great beginning and a great ending? But if you have a bad beginning, you can't have a great ending by the grace of God. So David and Bathsheba, they had a bad beginning. Uh, could you imagine David and Bathsheba going out to a meal with other couples, and inevitably when you're having a meal with other couples that you don't know, the question comes up, how did you all meet? 
How many know that David and Bathsheba always wanted to avoid that question? Because, like, David was not comfortable with, uh, well, one day, you know, I was king, and when kings were supposed to go out to war, I stayed behind. I was, uh, and it was like the middle of the night. I couldn't sleep, so I got up, and I went out to my lattice, and I was on my balcony. I saw this naked woman. She was beautiful, and she was bathing. Why she was naked, bathing in the middle of the night, I don't know. But I really lusted for her. But her husband worked for me, so I had him killed so I could marry her. How <laughs> I many know that's a story you want to avoid? So David and Bathsheba, they're like, they're, they're one of the infamous married couples in the Bible. Uh, you have Ahab and Jezebel. They're like the most wicked couple in the Bible, right? You have Herod and Herodias. John the Baptist lost his head over this married couple because John the Baptist wasn't politically correct and he kept telling Herod that it was unlawful for him to be married to Herodias. Now why was it unlawful for Herod to be married to Herodias? This is in the Bible. Because Herod stole Herodias from his brother Philip. In other words, Herodias was married to Herod's brother which made her his sister-in-law, and so he stole his sister-in-law from his brother and made her his wife. I mean, that's a reality TV show in the making right there. I mean, no, wife swapping isn't anything new. It was happening in the first century, okay? So uh, John the Baptist kept reminding Herod that it was not a, a lawful marriage, and he, his head got chopped off. As, uh, as a result of it. So Ananias and Sapphira, they're this couple here in Acts 5, and they're not a famous couple. They're an infamous couple. Uh, who were they? Well, you could say they were the Bonnie and Clyde of the New Testament, okay? Because they thought they could scam God, which you can't. So let's go to Acts chapter 5, verse 1, and uh, let's read this verse out loud together. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. Stop there. Now notice the very first word. What's the very first word of this sentence? Let's say it out, together, say it out loud together. But. Buts in the Bible are very important. I'm talking about B-U-T's. S's. B-U-T-S. Buts. Those buts are very important in the Bible. Why are these buts so important in the Bible? Because they're hinge points. And these hinge points, these butts in the Bible, they open a vast door of, of truth. So the very first word that's used in Acts 5.1 is the word but. Why? Because it's a continuous thought from the previous chapter. Now, you know, uh, those who studied the Bible, the Bible originally was not written in chapters and verses. Those were added later to try to help those of us that were going to read and study the Bible. So what happened in chapter 4, and what's happened in 5 is a continuation. What happened in chapter 4? There was a great outpouring of generosity, and we talked about that last weekend. And there was one individual that was singled out at the very end of chapter 4. The very last two verses talks about a guy by the name of Joseph, whose name was changed to Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Why? Because Barnabas was a wealthy man. God had blessed him, and he took a portion of his wealth, his land, and he sold it and he brought the entire proceeds to help the church so that the church could distribute the needs accordingly. Now, he received praise for that. He didn't, he, Barnabas didn't do it for praise. But Jesus said, let your, good, let your good works be seen by others, right, that they might glorify God. So your good works beget the good works of others, and that's why it's good, important that we set a good example. That's why there is such a thing as role models. And whether you recognize it or not, if you have affluence or you have influence, if God has blessed you with that, you have a responsibility with that. You're a steward of that. And so uh, you are a role model. You are an example to others. And so Barnabas became this incredible role model, and his giving inspired others to give, and it inspired Ananias and Sapphira. But the heart with which Barnabas gave was not the same heart as we're going to see here in just a moment in which uh, Ananias and Sapphira 
gave. So at this point, though, the church was growing, the church was going, and the church was glowing. And something bad happened. Hypocrisy began to seep into the church. And because God did not want the church to become spiritually deformed and didn't want that, that DNA to be inserted in the, in the life of the church because it was at the infancy of the church, he had to address the hypocrisy in this couple. Now, the thing you need to know is there are no perfect churches, okay? There is no such thing as a perfect church. There is a such thing as a perfect Savior, and that's Jesus. But there are no perfect churches. Say, so there, there, what we have to understand is you can love something even though it's not perfect. Now, how many of you, you love your spouse, but you know they're not perfect? Raise your hand. Come on. You know. You love them, right? Tell them I love you. You're almost there, but not quite. Tell them you're almost there. Come on, but not quite. You're on your way. Amen. So we can love someone even though you don't find perfection in them. How many of you love your kids? Some of you are like hesitant to raise your hand. Okay. We love our children. And how many know they're not perfect? Right? Yeah, they remind us regularly. They're not perfect. Okay. Uh, how many of you love your dog, right? Like, you know your dog's not perfect, right? He'll, he'll make a mess. Um, how many of you love your job? You all need to start loving your job or somebody else will start loving that job, right? So uh, we may not, so there are things that we love that aren't, how many of you love your church? Yeah, okay, good response, good response. We love our church, but we know our church isn't perfect. Now listen, in the Bible, there's no perfect church. Paul wrote letters to churches, and so here's what you have to understand. All churches have a certain level of hypocrisy. Why? Because churches are filled with people, and all of us have a certain amount of hypocrisy, and everybody does. Why? Because we have been saved, justified. We're being saved, sanctification. And we will one day be saved, glorification. So in this process between justification and glorification is this process called sanctification. And how many know there are some things that God is still trying to purge from our lives? Some things he's still trying to perfect holiness in our lives. He is still sanctifying us from. How many know there's not one perfect Christian in church today? Right? Are you with me? Okay. So take a big... uh, Breathe a sigh of relief. There are no perfect churches. But what Paul did is he wrote, he wrote to churches that had high hypocrisy and churches that had low hypocrisy. The goal is to be a low hypocrisy church. Corinth, the church at Corinth was a high hypocrisy church. It, had, it was filled with carnality, filled with sin, filled with strife, filled with division. And God still loved that church. Paul still loved that church. And, and God still sent his ministry into that church so that they could grow. But take the church Philipp- the church of Philippi, it had low hypocrisy. Uh, it was a book, the theme of Philippi is about joy, and, and Paul did have to address two ladies in the church that were kind of at odds with one another. But, but Philippi compared to Corinth, one was high hypocrisy, one was low hypocrisy. So there are no perfect churches, and God reminds us of that here in Acts chapter 5 with this story. So go to verse 2. And it says that Ananias kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it. Uh Uh-oh, she was a party to the sin. And brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, what was Ananias and Sapphira's sin? It was the love of money, which is the root of all evil. Uh, Their sin was the sin of of power. They were abusing the power that God gave them, which money is power. It is influence. And so they sold that possession with the wrong motive. They were committing the sin of pride because they kept back part of the price. That's what's said in verse 2 here. 
and they committed the sin of pretense because they were going to lie to the Holy Spirit in front of the apostle of God in, in the house of God, in the gathering of God's people. That's verse 3. So let's look at verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? Now that's a question. But within that question is grace. Because God, through Peter, is giving Ananias an opportunity to respond to the grace of God reaching out to him. Because at that moment, Ananias should have said, Peter, I was wrong. I have sinned against God. He should have fallen before the mercy of God and said, what must I do to make it right? But he didn't. He didn't do that. Now, Peter asked Ananias, he said, why have you kept back? Why have you kept back part of the price? Now, that the term kept to keep back, it's where we get our, our word misappropriate or embezzle or steal. Now, here's what's interesting. Did the land that Ananias and Sapphira sell, was it their land? It's not a trick question. Yes. Were they in control of that land? Yes. Even when they sold that land, was it still their land? Yes. Peter gets into that here in the next verse, but just, just, just hang with me here. As long as it was within, was within their possession, it was theirs to do with it what they want, ultimately under God, because we know that God's the owner, we're the owner, he, he owns everything, and we're managers of our master's resources. But the moment that Ananias and Sapphira made a vow, made a deal with God, and before the church and before the apostles of God, they said, we're going to sell this land and we're going to give it all to the church. The moment they made that vow, that land ceased to be theirs. And when they stole, so that's how you steal from yourself. They stole, they embezzled their own money. How do you embezzle your own money? Only if you have already consecrated that money, dedicated that money to the Lord's use. And so when they did that, they didn't discharge their vow. It looked like a lot of money. It was a lot of money, and they said it's too much money to give to the church, so they kept some back. And so Peter asked the question, how have you allowed Satan to fill your heart? To fill your heart. That word fill is the same word that's used in, in Acts and in the Bible when we are admonished to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So there are people that can be, there, we can be filled with the Holy Spirit, or get this, we can be filled with Satan. Now, the brazen audacity of Ananias and Sapphira is that they were lying to God. It's one thing to lie to man, that's not good, but to lie to God? I mean, he knows everything. Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote this, sin has many tools, but a lie is the handle which fits them all. You know what Jesus said about the devil in John 8, 44? Jesus said, here's two things you need to know about the enemy. He's a murderer and he's a liar. He was a murderer from the beginning. Every time he opens his mouth, he speaks lies. The language of the devil is the language of lying. The language of heaven is the language of truth-telling. So you have to beware of the lies of the enemy. So Satan filled Ananias' heart, and he thought that he could get away with lying to God or to uh, the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 4 now. This is Peter talking to Ananias. While 
while it remained, while the land remained in your control, was it not your own? Answer, yes. After it was sold, was it not in your control? Answer, yes. Then why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. Now, Peter addresses three important topics here, church, and you need to listen to me very, very carefully. Peter, the apostle Peter, addresses three important topics. Number one, he addresses the topic of ownership. Now, if you were with us last week, we hit it hard. So we're not going to hit it as hard, but we're going to hit it. Ownership is near and dear to the heart of God. God believes that human beings, you have a God-given right, not a government-given right. You, every single person, has a God-given right to own some land. I've been in Papua New Guinea where maybe the, the land that, that, that a family owned was as big as, as, this, as this platform, but that was their land. They had a right to own that land. Uh, they had a right to allow that land to provide for their needs, and they, they had a right to defend that land. So God obsesses over land. You read through the Old Testament, God obsesses over land and the right of ownership because you really don't own anything unless you own a piece of property. So God believes in a free economy, not a socialist, communist economy where the government takes over and the government controls and the government owns everything. You see? Oh, okay. Thank you. (laughs) I'll take that. Get this. Even barking dogs understand property rights. You walk by someone's house and they have a dog in the front yard, that dog does not like the fact that you're walking in his territory. And he or she will let you know, stay away. And that's not an original thought, actually. Uh, Hernando de Soto, right, a great uh, economist thinker, in, in a book, that, a thesis he wrote called The Mystery of Capital, Why Capitalism Triumphs in the West and Fails Everywhere Else. He was actually in Indonesia, and he was meeting with high government officials in Indonesia. And he was talking about why free economy wasn't working because it has to be attached to property rights. And so he said to the high-ranking government officials in Indonesia, he said, barking dogs had the basic information they needed to set up formal property system, property rights. So even a dog can teach us about property rights. Uh, last year, my oldest son and I were going on a father-son trip. He had turned 21. And so uh, we flew to Miami, and we, we jumped in the cab to get to our hotel. And uh, uh, I struck up a conversation with the cab driver. I said, where are you from? He said, Haiti. And I said, awesome. You know, how long have you been in, the, in America? And we had a short conversation. And then he got on to socialism. I don't know why, but he just said, how wonderful uh, universal health care is going to be in America, and, and we need to get with the program because in Canada they have free health care for everybody. And I said, well, if it's so good in Canada, how come people are coming from Canada to America to get worked on? I mean, you know, because they are, right? And I said, hey, if it's so good in Canada, how come they're waiting months in line in order to get the care that they need and that they deserve? Well, he didn't have an answer for that. But he kept talking about how awesome socialism is. And I said, okay. So we were getting close to the hotel. And I said, do you own this cab? He said, yes. I said, so basically you work for yourself. I said, he said, yes. I said, well, you're living the American dream, and that, that, that's a blessing. I said, what if the government came and, and took over all the cab drivers and all the cab companies in Miami, and you now had to work for the government, and they determined how much they paid you each and every day? Would you like that? 
He thought for a second. He's like, oh, no, I would not like that. I said, see? And at that moment, we arrived at our hotel, and I said, I want to thank you. I want to thank you that you are basically an entrepreneur. You have your own cab business, and you brought me from point A to point B. You did it efficiently. You did it safely. You did it in a timely fashion. And I said, you are charging me a fair market value for your services. And I said, and now the capitalist in me is going to leave you a big tip. Amen. <laughs> and we had a nice little lesson there of the difference of the right of ownership versus that right being taken from you. The second thing that Peter mentions here is he mentions Satan. I know uh, people like in our culture today, they like to joke about Satan. Ha, 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 ha. So many people believe uh, that Satan doesn't exist, that he's, but he is. He is a malevolent person, entity, that's identified in Scripture. Jesus had hand-to-hand -hand combat with the devil in the, in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 4 when he was tempted of the devil 40 days and 40 nights while in the wilderness. The devil is a real, malevolent, personified entity in our world. And he comes, as Jesus said in John 10, 10, to steal, kill, and destroy he is our enemy. He is God's arch enemy. He is man's arch enemy. In 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter said, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The, the book of Job tells us that he walks. He's not omnipresent like God. He's not omni, omnipotent like God. He's not all-knowing and all-powerful, and he can't be in all places at the same time. He is limited. He is a fallen angel, but he still has abilities and powers that were created within him the moment he was created. He fell from grace millions of years ago, potentially, and was cast down to heaven like a bolt of light, and Jesus describes that in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. And Job tells us that he, he walks to and fro throughout the whole earth, and he walks to accuse God's children falsely. He walks to reap havoc in whole entire nations and societies and cultures. He walks to and fro to destroy families and to disintegrate marriages. He is our arch enemy and he's real. And we're not to give him more credit than he deserves, for he doesn't deserve any credit. But he has a kingdom, and his kingdom has influence. His kingdom has power. Even Jesus said Satan's kingdom stands because his kingdom is not working against itself. His kingdom is not divided. And Peter tells us here that Satan can actually fill someone's heart. It says that, why have you allowed Satan to fill your heart? You see, Satan can't fill your heart unless you let him. But if we're not careful, we can open the door to Satan in our life. There are many doors that can open up Satan. Immorality can open up the door of Satan in someone's life. Homosexuality can open the door of Satan in someone's life. Drug abuse can open the door. Matter of fact, there's a Greek word, pharmacia, which is translated sorcery in the book of Revelation, which says in the end times there's going to be a massive uh, spread of sorcery or the abuse of illegal drugs in the end times. That's in the Bible. There are, there are things and activities that we can do that can open the door of the devil in our life. There's one thing. There, there are certain things I, will, I refuse to do. I, I will not participate in. I will not go there. Uh, early on, before I got saved, I used to play with Ouija boards until the devil one day showed up playing the Ouija board. And it scared the literal hell out in me and out of me. And... Uh, I told myself as a little kid, I'm, I'm not messing with that stuff ever again. Tariot cards, the occult, it's real. Now, the devil has power, but not all power. God has all power. 
And you and I are no match for the devil. But in Christ, we are a match for all the powers of darkness because greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world. That's why young people, that new game that's being popularized, Charlie, Charlie, whatever that, don't, you don't want to be involved in that satanic stuff because it's real. And the devil, can, that can be a door that we open that can allow him into our hearts. We don't want to be filled with Satan. We want to be filled with God. We want to be filled with his precious Holy Spirit. So Satan is real. The, the, the third thing that Peter addresses here is sin itself, sin. Ownership, Satan, and sin. We live in a society today that has all but eradicated sin, right? Uh, it's been a long process. It really actually started in the uh, latter 60s. And so what's happened is we have eradicated the mention of sin and even the definition of sin. If it does exist, if sin still does exist, it existed in Adolf Hitler, but that's about it. And yet, in 1973, a famous psychiatrist, Dr. Carl Menninger, wrote a book entitled Whatever Became of Sin. And in his theses, he was talking about not, not sin in the social sense, breaching of man's laws or societal norms, but willful rebellion against the divine standards and the holy commands of a holy God. You see, the Bible identifies sin. One of the major themes of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is sin. Uh, the reason the message of Christ and the message of the gospel is good news because it's good news to sinners. It's good news to those who recognize the fact that they are lost in sin, undone, without God, and that makes all of us candidates for God's amazing grace and incredible mercy and the saving power of the blood of Jesus. But until we come to the realization that we are lost sinners, we don't need a Savior. We need a motivational speaker. We need a therapist. We need a counselor. You know, we, we need a friend. We need whatever, but we don't need a Savior. It's only when you realize that you are in need of a Savior because you're a sinner that the message of Jesus can become real in your life. And here's what Dr. Menninger pointed out. He said, when we no longer define things as sin, when we no longer have sin, when sin and the word sin is eradicated from our consciousness and, and from our conversation uh, as, as a community of people, then there's no shame. So now we are a shameless society. Now we live in a society where there is no shame, that where anything, anything goes. And yet, here's the reality. We still see the consequences of sin. Even though we deny the reality of sin and we don't want to talk about sin and really nothing is sin anymore, it's a right, it's a choice, it's courageous. But it's not sin. It's all those things. It's a right, it's a choice, it's courageous, but it's not sin. We have now reached a place in our collective consciousness as a people in Western civilization where we are praising perversion where we are taking immoral, perverse behavior of individuals and we're setting them on a pedestal and we're saying, this is a role model. And what this person has done to themselves is something that should be celebrated. And from the highest office in the land, what was tweeted out about what has been trending all over social media, and you know what I'm talking about, uh, this person said, that was a courageous act. No. I'll tell you what is courage. Yesterday, June 6th, 
We celebrated the anniversary of the invasion of Normandy and the beginning of the defeat of Nazism and imperialism and tyranny in our world. I'll tell you what courage is. Courage is an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, 20-year-old young man who didn't want to go halfway around the world to fight in World War II. As I read in an article just yesterday, they didn't want to be throwing hand grenades. They wanted to be throwing baseballs. They did not want to be shooting, shooting at Nazis and, and Japanese uh, soldiers. They wanted to be shooting at rabbits. But they traveled halfway around the world, and they stormed the beaches of Normandy on June the 6th, which was a turning point in the war. And they bled, and they died, and they sacrificed, and they gave their lives so that we could know freedom today. That, my friend, is courage. That, my my friend, is bravery. Man, in his sordid, twisted way, might give you the ability to change your gender, but only God gives you the ability, the ability to change your identity. And the Bible says in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, for as many as believe in him, he gives them the power to become children of the Most High God. You want to change into something other than what you are? Call upon the name of the Lord, and he'll give you power to become a child of the living God, a son of God, and a daughter of God, a brand new creation, old things passed away, all things being made brand new. Look to your neighbor and say, I'm a child of God. Tell him, I'm a child of God. Whoo! Okay. I got filled momentarily with the Holy Spirit. And some people say, come on, Carl, pontificating holier than thou. I'm not. I know I'm a lost sinner. I know what I am outside of Jesus, and it's ugly. And that's what drove me to the cross of Jesus because I couldn't save myself and others couldn't save me. Only Jesus could save me. And only Jesus can save this nation. Only Jesus. And some say, well, that is, it's so insensitive and divisive. No, no, I'll tell you what's insensitive. I'll tell you what's divisive. To raise up certain individuals in our society and in our, in our community, in our country and in the world today, to raise them up and to point at them and say that they are a role model, that is the most divisive, insensitive, immoral thing that you can do to all the impressionable young men, young women, and children that are in our society. They need to look up to a godly role model. We need to get back to calling sin for what it is. It's not a hang-up. It's not a problem, it's not a quirk, it's not exploring one's identity, it's sin. And thank God we call it for what it is because then sin drives us to a savior and there's only one savior and there's still enough power in his blood to save and to deliver. Thank you, Jesus. Verse five, it says, then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear, say that with me, great fear. Say it again, great fear. In the last chapter, great power, great grace, made a great church. Well, now God's adding a new dimension. Not only great power, not only great grace, 
but great fear is what builds a great church. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. Verse 6, and the young man arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. I mean, this happened in church. I mean, how, would you, how many of you would like to be a part of that ministry in your local church? Hey, where do you volunteer? I'm in the dead hypocrite ministry, you know. When people die in church, I'd take them out in the back and bury them. <laughs> I mean, who would brag about that, you know? Or how would you like to be a member of this church? And then you go out after church to meet with some of your friends who attend other churches in, in Jerusalem. And everybody kind of has this conversation. They say, hey, so what happened to your church? And, and one of your friends says, oh, at my church, it was so awesome. Sister Jones got up. She gave a rendition of amazing grace. Oh, and the heavens were open and the glory came down. And you're thinking, oh, don't, don't ask me. Huh? And then your next friend, well, what happened at your church? And then, and then the other friend says, oh, at our church today, we had a special drama presentation, and it was so moving, there wasn't a dry eye in the service. And then they look at you. What happened at your church? <laughs> uh, two hypocrites lied to the Holy Ghost and dropped dead right there at the altar. <laughs> it's like, I won't be visiting that church anytime soon. <laughs> you know, God is a God of love. How many of you know God's a God of love? He's also a God of justice and judgment. And the Bible says there is a sin, 1, Corinthians, uh, 1 John chapter 5, read it for yourself. There is a sin that's not unto death, but there is a sin that's unto death. Uh, and then in 1 Corinthians 11, read it for yourself later. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, listen, many of you are sick, many of you are weak, and many of you are dying prematurely because of sin. They were not properly discerning the Lord's body. Now, I am not saying, don't you walk out of this church and say, I said this. I am not saying <laughs> that all Christians who may be struggling with sickness or have an area of weakness or die prematurely is because of sin. I am not saying that. But there are times that there is a sin unto death. Now, did Ananias and Ananias and Sapphira end up in heaven? I don't know. I, I, maybe. I hope so. I think so. Maybe. For by grace you're saved through faith, none of yourselves. But their life was cut short. Why? You don't mess with God. That's just good theology. Turn your name and say, don't mess with God. Don't, 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 just don't mess with God. Okay? He has his limits. How many know there are some people in the Old Testament that God killed? Yeah. 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 Uh, 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 Nadab and Abihu. They went into the temple one day and they were drunk. They're like, this is fun, brother. Yeah, this is fun. And they offered up strange fire. And fire came down from him and, and they killed him. Boom. French fries. <laughs> Leviticus 10. Read it for yourself. You don't mess with God. And then God told Aaron, that, that, those were Aaron's sons. God told Aaron, don't you cry at their funeral. You must revere me in front of all the people. Okay. <laughs> uh, Yuza, Yuza, in the Old Testament, they were bringing the, the, the Ark of Covenant back to Jerusalem, and, and it was going to tip over. And he did a good thing. He went to steady the Ark, but you're not to touch. You were not to, a common man was not to touch the Holy Ark of God. And he touched it, and he died. You know, there was a time in the life of Moses, God was going to kill Moses. It says it. I know this messes up your theology of lovey-dovey, greasy grace, all that stuff. I, and me too, but I know one thing. God is love, but I don't want to mess with him. I respect him. So God was going to kill Moses. And guess who saved Moses' life? His wife, Zipporah. This is where Sapphira failed. 
Instead of stepping in and slapping her husband saying, boy, what are you thinking about lying to the Holy Ghost? You want to die? Well, on second thought, that life insurance policy on you might be a good thing. Yeah, go ahead, lie all you want. No, Zipporah stepped between God and Moses, and then she did something with a knife with her son, and I won't get into the gory detail, but anyway, she saved her husband's life. Abigail, Abigail, Abigail momentarily saved her husband's life because David was going to kill Nabal because he insulted David's men. And Abigail went out with a bunch of food and, you know, a bunch of wine and a bunch of, you know, Pop-Tarts and said, hey, look, look at all the stuff I have for you, and you're, you're better than this, and he's worthless anyway. I mean, I'm married to the guy. I know he just, he's a jerk, okay? And you're like headed to the throne, and who knows, maybe one day we might. But anyway, uh, <laughs> so she, she stepped in. And you know what happened to Nabal? God killed him. He had a hard heart and died like a, a week later, a few days later. What am I saying uh, in closing? <laughs> Get right lest you die. No, no, I'm not saying that. <laughs> but I am saying this. 1 Peter 4.17 says this. Judgment begins at the house of God. The world's going to be judged. But God, because he loves his church and wants to protect his church, will correct people within that church that he deems have crossed the line. I don't, I, listen, I don't know what that line is. I just don't want to find that line. I want to live as far away from that line as I possibly can. Are you with me? So I don't want to trifle with that which is holy. I don't want to touch God's anointed nor do harm to his prophets. I, I don't want to tread on thin ice. I don't want to treat secular something that is truly sacred. And I want to have a healthy reverence for God. And I think the problem in the church today, by and large, and the problem in the lives of so many Christians, including myself, and the problem in our country today is that there is no fear of God. So here's how the story ends. Look at verse 7. Now, it was about three hours later when his wife came in. How much longer later? How much later was it? Three hours. A couple of things here. They had long services back then. Okay. Uh, and number two, it's always taking, taking wives longer to get ready for church than the husbands. I mean, just the way it's always been. Uh, and Sapphira, it, her name means, you know, brilliant, beautiful from the sapphire jewel itself. So, uh, you know, for some women, it takes a little bit longer to get to that level of beauty. So, hey, you know, whatever it takes. But like three hours? I'm like, I mean, you know, Anna and I was like excited. I want to go to church. I want to give. I want to give. I want to go to church. She's like, I'm not ready. It was like, I'm going to go. You come in whenever you come. She's okay, you take donkey one, I'll take donkey two. <laughs> now, there was a problem back then. They didn't have social media because, you know, if your husband went to church early and he died because he lied to the Holy Ghost before the man of God, uh, it would all be all, it'd be all over social media, right? And your friends would be like texting you, man, don't go to church. God's after you. <laughs> so it says, not knowing what had happened, verse 8, and Peter, and Peter answered her. Question. Uh, law enforcement, uh, a defense attorney would call this entrapment. <laughs> Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Those were the last words she spoke on earth. Verse 9, then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Verse 10, then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carry, carrying her out buried her by her husband are you kidding me so what's this all about look at verse 11 let's read it out loud together so great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things 
you know, this is not my church, this is not your church, you know, this is God's church. And every gathering of believers throughout our community and nation around the world where the name of Jesus is lifted up and the Holy Scriptures are taught and the Holy Spirit is invited and worship and ministry and salvation is taking place, this is God's house. Remember how angry Jesus got when he went to the temple one day and he saw money changers and they were manipulating and all kinds of crazy stuff? He kicked over the money. He drove. He said, this is my Father's house and you've made it a den of thieves. I think God's saying to us, there's a certain way we should behave in church, in loving him, in loving one another, in serving him, and seeking him out of a sincere heart. It doesn't mean that we don't have struggles and shortcomings and we won't make mistakes, but we're quick to turn to God's grace and receive his forgiveness. And I close with this loving warning, and it's this. The first time money shows up in the book of Acts, first time money really shows up in the book of Acts, it shows up in church. Money and church go hand in hand. Don't have, don't have ill feelings about churches and money. Here in Acts 5, without money, the mission of the church cannot be carried on. So thank God for those who generously give of their tithes and offerings to the work of Jesus Christ. And this is a holy transaction. I believe that's what the Lord is saying. But as soon as money shows up in Acts 5, as soon as money shows up in the church, who showed up? The devil. So I'm saying, God, may we consecrate our lives and consecrate our finances that we would open a door for the favor of God and not the displeasure of God where our finances are concerned. Can we, can we pray? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we humbly come before you today, and I pray that my words would fall on deaf ears, but I pray your word would be planted deep in the hearts of your people and would produce fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. I pray it would not return back to you void, but accomplish what you've sent it forth to do, and it would prosper in every heart, prosper in every family, prosper in every relationship, prosper in every marriage. I pray your love and grace and power to touch us. I pray that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit. We would be filled with your love, that we would be filled with your goodness. Now, with heads bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today, and those of you that are watching live streaming, you can pray this prayer along with the rest of us. Say it with your own mouth. Mean it from your own heart. Turn your life over to Jesus. Invite him into your heart by praying this prayer. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now, come into my heart. Come into my life. Be my Lord and be my Savior. I turn from sin to the true and living God. I receive his love, his grace, and his forgiveness. Dear God in heaven, you're now my father, and I am your child. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit and give me strength to live for you and serve you all the days of my life, beginning today for the rest of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Can we thank the Lord together, church family?